Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Today, we're going to talk about judicial ethics, and in particular, the ethics obligation of the most powerful jurists in the country, the justices of the Supreme Court. It's an issue that has become more urgent in recent months, as we have learned that Ginny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, engaged in a pressure campaign to overturn the 2020 election results. Meanwhile, Justice Thomas himself has participated in several cases, directly or indirectly, involving the 2020 election results. One of those was the court's decision in January requiring that Trump's White House records be turned over to the House January 6th committee. Only one justice dissented, Clarence Thomas. Now, as of the time we're recording this, Ginny Thomas has agreed to speak to that very committee about the events leading up to January 6th. So the questions are, should Justice Thomas have recused himself? And should he do so going forward? To answer those and other questions, I reached out to Kathleen Clark, an expert in legal and government ethics. She's a professor at the Washington University in St. Louis School of Law, and she also practices ethics and whistleblower law in Washington, D.C. Professor Clark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So this is an issue that people have been talking about and complaining about and getting riled up about for some time. Let's take a step back, and could you describe for folks what the conduct is on the part of Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, that has led to this controversy? There were a couple of different um, uh, behaviors that uh, Ginny Thomas has engaged in uh, that uh, are relevant here. She traded text messages, a bunch of uh, dozens, apparently, of, of text messages uh, with then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows uh, after the November 2020 election in an attempt to ensure that President Trump would stay in office. And um, in those emails or text messages, she viewed the election results in really apocalyptic terms. So that's one set of behaviors. Um, in addition, she reached out to, I believe, lawmakers in Arizona and Wisconsin, encouraging them to... Uh, to choose uh, President Trump's electors rather than Biden's electors, even though Biden won both of those states. 
that latter fact may come into play to the degree that the Supreme Court would get involved with the question of of these false electors. And in fact, I believe that that was the basis, I believe, for the Texas v. Pennsylvania case, um, which Thomas participated in and issued a statement indicating that the Supreme Court should have taken up that case, although the court did not grant uh, cert on that case. Right. People can have views about whether or not Ginny Thomas's conduct was appropriate or not, legitimate or not, legal or not. But people will ask the question, people are not steeped in legal ethics, what does any of that have to do with her husband? They're different people, they have different careers, they have different lives, they're separate persons. Why does any of this affect the decision-making or the propriety of decision-making by Clarence Thomas? Here's why. Congress passed a statute that sets out when a Supreme Court justice, or frankly, any federal judge, has to recuse. And that statute has uh, several different standards. There's a very general standard saying that a justice should recuse if the justice's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. Um, so that's a really general standard. And then there are sort of more some several more specific circumstances that require recusal, including if a judge's or a justice's financial interest is at stake in a case. But that statute also indicates that non-financial interest can come into play and can require recusal. And here's what the statute says. If the justice's spouse has a an interest, and it doesn't have to be a financial interest, has an interest that could be substantially affected by the outcome of the proceeding, then the justice is required to recuse. And here's how that comes into play. It's it's not that Ginny Thomas has uh, a financial interest in, in these cases that come before the Supreme Court, but she could have a non-financial interest. For instance, she has agreed to testify before or, or speak to the January 6th committee. And it may be the case that there won't be any kind of disagreement between her and the committee about the scope of her testimony. But that's unlikely. (laughs) That's unlikely, right? Right. If there is a disagreement and if she does resist providing the information that the committee wants, then she has a stake in whether the Supreme Court or perhaps any court views the January 6th committee as being legally constituted and having the authority to uh, gather the information it's it's seeking. And there are currently pending lawsuits where that is at issue, what the scope of the committee's authority is and whether or not the committee has the authority to seek the information it's, it's subpoenaing. So today, I don't know that there's a conflict of interest, but if she resists the committee's uh, requests and if the litigation between the committee and these other individuals or or witnesses gets up to the Supreme Court, that's when Clarence Thomas, I believe, would have to recuse under this statute because she has an interest in the that could be substantially affected by the outcome of such cases. What about the case I mentioned in the introduction in which Clarence Thomas was the sole dissenter? Do you think he should have recused himself from that case or did that not present a sufficient conflict? I think he should have. The facts are not quite so clear to me, but here's my understanding. So in that case, Trump asked the Supreme Court 
to block the re- release of documents from the uh, from NARA, the, the National Archives, to the January 6th committee. And it's possible that the texts between Meadows and Ginny Thomas may have been included in those White House records. I don't know whether they are or whether they weren't, but if they were, then Thomas should have, I believe, recused, should not have participated, should not have dissented, um, because his wife had an interest, I would argue, in the non-disclosure of those text messages. Right. So here's the big question. You said there's a law, there's a statute. I, I think you're talking about Title 28 USC Section 455. I am. That has this language you described, and there's a reasonable argument. Some can differ, but there's a reasonable argument in favor of recusal in these circumstances. Why isn't someone enforcing that? There's a huge problem with this statute, which is it's not at all clear how to enforce this statute. In other words, a party may not know that the justice's impartiality or that the justice's spouse, say, has an interest that could be affected by the outcome of the proceeding. But but here we know. So in a case where we know, we know so much about it that we're doing a podcast on it. (laughs) Other people have talked about it. Um, it's not a criminal statute, so you know a U.S. attorney's office can enforce it, and maybe there's a separation of powers problem there also. But when Congress passed this law, who did they contemplate would enforce a law, and why pass a law that would have no enforcement mechanism and no force? Well, Congress has been known to pass laws because they they look good, apart from what effects they have. Congress tends to tread lightly when it comes particularly to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that may partly explain why Congress hasn't made clear what the mechanisms are for enforcing this. But I think that the truth of the matter is this statute sets out legal standards, but its great weakness, I think, is in a lack of procedures for how to go about ensuring that these standards are met. And in particular, when it comes to the Supreme Court, for ensuring that a justice shouldn't be you know, applying this statute to themselves. So right now, the Supreme Court justices rely on themselves to make these decisions on whether to recuse. They don't even like punt it to the rest of the court. Yeah, that's convenient, isn't it? Well, and there's this, this concept, right, that no person should judge their own case. And yet when it comes to this recusal statute, that's exactly what happens. And it's frankly a, a, a really fatal weakness in this statute and in the scheme of judicial ethics, particularly for the Supreme Court. Yeah. And so can I ask you, so we're talking about the Ginny Thomas issue and the likelihood of recusal or the, the propriety of recusal. I'll give you a more clear-cut case and the kind of thing that judges all over the country at lower levels certainly are required to recuse themselves. Let's say that Justice Thomas or any other justice had a half a million dollars of stock in IBM, and a matter comes to the Supreme Court in which IBM is a direct party, and the result of the Supreme Court's decision will have a financial impact on the value of IBM's stock. In that circumstance, given the lack of a mechanism for enforcement, if Justice Thomas or any other Thomas sat on that case and didn't recuse himself, any consequence or no? Yes, the the consequence is that the public loses trust in the Supreme Court and in other courts where this has happened. And there have been... But but is there any direct consequence for the justice who chooses not to recuse himself in that circumstance? 
I suppose in theory, uh, you could imagine a justice being, um, you know, impeached, right? But, you know, the justices and the judges have life tenure. And so that's a pretty extreme response to this kind of thing. But that's an, that's an available option, technically and legally and constitutionally, right? In theory, but, 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 but in reality, no. Yeah, people are talking about it, you know, on, on, on public platforms. Oh, uh, impeaching Thomas? Yeah, I've heard people talk about it. I think I've heard, I'm not sure, I think I've heard an elected official or two talk about it. And, you know, the fact that some elected official is talking about it doesn't mean it's likely to happen or should happen, but people have been talking about it. So how many votes do we need in the Senate to, to remove someone yeah, from, no, I know. from office? I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. Let me ask you another question about, about Jenny Thomas. If, just to parse out what are more clear or less clear cases of conflict or you know, skepticism about the impartiality of a justice. If Ginny Thomas had not just been a witness or somebody who was imploring Mark Meadows and others in text messages to overturn the election, but instead she, she was retained to represent and does represent Donald Trump in all matters relating to January 6th, which the Department of Justice is investigating and January 6th committee is obviously investigating. If she were a lawyer of record for Donald Trump, would that be an even more clear case for Clarence Thomas to recuse himself? And do you think he might in that circumstance? So if she were a lawyer of record at the Supreme Court, then he would have to, okay? I think that's a, a stronger case in, in the sense that it's closer, it's more closely analogous to other cases where um, courts have found recusal is required because the spouse or relative, close relative of the judge has not just an ideological commitment as Ginny Thomas explained in her texts, but also has a, like a professional reputational interest as well. If we're talking about her representing him, not in unrelated matters, but in, in related matters, I, I, I think that's a stronger case. So if you had the power of the pen and the authority to enact an enforcement mechanism, what would that look like? Well, the first thing I'd say is that just when someone requests recusal, it shouldn't, in the first instance, be the justice themselves who makes that decision. That it, you know, they can punt it to, you know, another member of the court or to multiple members of the court. That's the first thing. The, the other thing I'd say, though, is that what the financial conflict uh, examples that you alluded to earlier tell us is that there needs to be much stronger disclosure, much more robust disclosure and timely disclosure for judges' financial interest uh, because parties are not in a position to even know whether a judge or a justice currently has a conflicting financial interest because they're depending on financial disclosure statements from the previous year. And that's not sufficient to you know, ensure impartiality and to prevent uh, violations of this statute, of this recusal statute. Do you have a prediction on whether or not there will come a time in connection with this set of cases that Clarence Thomas will recuse himself? Oh, I'm not optimistic about Clarence Thomas recusing himself. Yeah. <laughs> by, which, <laughs> by which you mean he's definitely not. I, I think it's highly unlikely that he would, despite what I think is clear law requiring him to. Um, but it turns out he's not consulting me for ethics advice. Right. He's nor nor I. Um, last question. It's not a legal question. It's a question about the psychology of justices generally and Clarence Thomas specifically. Why not just recuse himself? You know, this issue of impartiality 
almost presents itself in a, in a very strong fashion because I think lots of people of good faith who are reasonable have raised the question. And if the question has been raised in such a substantial way by experts like you and others, why not just recuse himself? Does he just not care? Do you have a view? I believe that Justice Thomas has ideological commitments. And I think that he probably has um, greater confidence than most of us in his own um, analysis and his own, his own probity, right? I've heard reference to um, Article Three egos, and that must be particularly true um, for justices on the Supreme Court. <laughs> I think you've just given us a title for this episode. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and frankly, in, in, in preparation to, for talking to you, with you, I went back and I read um, Justice Scalia's statement refusing to recuse in the energy task force litigation that involved Cheney and the fact that Cheney, he, he had invited Cheney to go on a hunting trip with him and had this friendship with Cheney, right? I suspect that uh, Justice Thomas uh, would see himself in Scalia's ilk in terms of not worrying about, you know, what the, perhaps what the little people think, but relying instead on his own sense of what he ought to be doing um, and, and the power he ought to be exercising as a Supreme Court justice. Professor Kathleen Clark, thanks so much for being with us and explaining this to us in an in-depth but brief way. Thank you so much. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.